Find your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We will be studying verses 12 through 34 this morning. (laughs) Yes, that's my son. Uh, And my title this morning for the sermon is The Difference the Resurrection Makes. The Difference the Resurrection Makes. And the assertion that I hope to unpack through a number of points in our study and prayer and reflection here is that the resurrection of the body roots our entire faith in the life of Christ. The resurrection of the body roots our entire faith in the life of Christ. So, follow along with me as I read this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12, going all the way down through verse 34. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Let's pray again together. Father, we hear your word this morning, and we pray for hearts, minds, and spirits that are attentive to your word this morning. Reveal yourself to us so that we might go away from this place changed, driven to greater love for you and greater love for our neighbors. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As a church, we recite the Apostles' Creed at each observance of the Lord's Supper or Eucharist. In this recitation, we confess the fundamental truths of the Christian faith before God, to ourselves, and to one another. 
we confess God as Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. We confess God as the author and sustainer of all life. We confess the essential place of the church in God's sovereign will. We confess our dependence on God's mercy, the importance of confession, the need for repentance, and divine forgiveness. We confess the virgin birth, the perfect life, unjust trial, suffering, satisfactory death, and burial of Jesus Christ. What if that was all we confessed? Uh, Would it really make any difference to change just one phrase in the Apostles' Creed? So what if the Apostles' Creed went something like this? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He ascended into heaven. Oh, I'm sorry, pardon me. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now, you know, that does, I know, although I tried to change the phrasing a little bit in my reading, that was not intended to be the case. Um, so we dropped out one little phrase. It doesn't really seem that bad, right? I mean, it's just, just one little phrase. Surely it doesn't make that big of a difference. Does it really make that big of a difference to drop out the resurrection of the body? Well, I hate to break it to you, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning, our passage tells us just how much of a difference dropping out that phrase would make. Um, Now, we won't do this. We won't break apart the Apostles' Creed. But as we go forward, you will realize if we drop out that one phrase, we'll begin to have to then drop out a few other things as well. Um, As it turns out, if we reject, minimize, or downplay the resurrection of the body, we run into some serious, serious issues. Um, We will grow to understand that the resurrection of the body is central to the Christian story, reminding us of the difference the resurrection makes, the title of the sermon this morning. Building off of Paul's exposition of the gospel in the beginning of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which was a defense of his apostolic declaration of the gospel and his life in preaching, um, as well as the Corinthian church's positive affirmation of these, these parts of the gospel, death, burial, resurrection of Christ. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 34, divides into three sections that will work to open our eyes, to warm our hearts, and motivate our lives into a greater, richer understanding of what the resurrection of the body promises us in the gospel. And these three sections correspond to three differences I'd like to outline this morning. Um, three differences the resurrection makes. Difference number one, the Christian story depends upon the resurrection. And if you're taking notes, this is going to be my outline, main points here. Difference number one, the Christian story depends upon the resurrection. Difference number two, Christ's rule declares resurrection realities. Christ's rule declares resurrection realities. And difference number three, the church's practice is shaped by resurrection living. The church's practice is shaped by resurrection living. Look with me again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning of verse 12, where we see difference number one. The Christian story depends upon the resurrection. Verse 12, but if it is preached, begins with a conjunction, but. 
uh, connecting what precedes in the first 11 verses with what follows in verses 12 through 19. Here, Paul defends the historicity of the resurrection. Um, I'm sorry, in verses 1 through 11, Paul defends the historicity of the resurrection. The Corinthians affirm it. And then in verses 12 through 19, he goes on to build an argument based upon this shared understanding of the gospel, essentially. Uh, And in this way, Paul points to the impossibility of the Corinthians to deny the bodily resurrection while also accepting the full gospel. It seems some in Corinth accepted the bodily resurrection of Christ, but denied the bodily resurrection of the Christian or of humanity. Um, Some Corinthian Christians seem to accept the immortality of the soul, which is a popular Greek notion at this time, um, claiming that the mind or the spirit, the immaterial, would go on to live, but the physical was, would kind of just disappear or to be destroyed or go away. Um, what seems like a harmless, or maybe even in their case, they felt like a humble denial, right? Oh, well, Christ is God. He is resurrected, but I'm just a humble person. I don't have to be resurrected. Uh, what seems like harmless or humble actually represents a far more troubling issue in the Christian story. And in fact, Paul lists five things, five consequences of denying the resurrection, thus showing to us the difference the resurrection makes in the Christian story. So five of them. First one, he gives us in verses 13 and actually in in verse 16 as well. And it's very simply, if the resurrection of the body doesn't happen, Christ is dead. Christ is dead. In verses 13 and 16, Paul portrays a startling consequence of denying the resurrection of our body. Simply put, no bodily resurrection of the Christian, no bodily resurrection of Christ. You ask, how can Paul say this? Well, very simply, he argues from what would be greater to lesser. Uh, Or in this case, if God will not resurrect all human beings, so a larger category, God did not raise one specific human being, Jesus Christ. Uh, Greater still, understand if we deny the the resurrection of the body, uh, we misunderstand the connection our resurrection has with Christ's resurrection and thus our understanding of the incarnation itself. Either God resurrects one specific human body, fully fully God, fully man, uh, the body of Christ, as an indication and promise of our resurrection, or Jesus very simply wasn't fully man, instead possessing a body in some way unlike ours, whatever that would mean, uh, and thus able to be resurrected unlike our bodies. So you understand there's, the, Paul says, well, if you say Christ is unlike us, he wasn't fully man, because if, we, if he was resurrected, we must be resurrected. If we are not resurrected, he was different than us in some way. And then I, maybe, maybe your mind is going to realize the significance then of this problem. It would be impossible to fully affirm Christ, the orthodox Christian understanding of Christ as fully God and fully man, if we deny the bodily resurrection. And actually, that's just the start. Paul keeps going. So problem number one, consequence number one, Christ is dead. Consequence number two, preaching is pointless deception. Preaching is pointless deception, which would know what I'm doing this morning. Uh, verses 14 and 15 is where Paul unpacks this for us. When he says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ, 
from the dead. You see, the fundamental realities proclaimed by the apostles, affirmed by the church, stand upon a Savior who does not simply have lived, who, Christ who did not simply live a perfect life, did not simply die an atoning death, but was raised from physical death. He died. He was in the tomb. He rose again. Uh, the previous section of Scripture, uh, verses 1 through 11, actually just affirmed, and the, and the Corinthians agreed, and we ought to agree, the resurrection of Christ is an essential component of the gospel. And in fact, Scripture, the, all of, all, the whole of Scripture, attests to every element of the gospel. The incarnation, the perfect life, death, and the resurrection. And this is connected directly to us, our justification, our sanctification, our resurrection. There's an inseparable connection. You cannot have one without the other. The gospel message cannot be preached or proclaimed or affirmed or we cannot ask and elicit a response because of this message. Without, we can't preach partly this, this message without rejecting the whole. So the gospel cannot be preached in part without rejecting the whole of the gospel. If there is no resurrection of the body, the entire message revealed to the church, actively proclaimed, proclaimed by the apostles and then through church history, turns out to be nothing. turns out to be useless, pointless, vanity, um, in fact, that the word that is used uh, in the Greek version of the New Testament is the same word as Ecclesiastes, this, this vanity, this emptiness, this air that you can't grab onto and is not, not something that is actually real and tangible. And it turns out to be a lie, just a flat-out lie. And in fact, Paul uses this language, false witnesses, in verse 15. And this term describes someone who actively deceives and misleads someone else typically for personal gain. If there is not a bodily resurrection, the apostolic witness preaching itself, the testimony of the gospel, is based upon unreliable, at best, faulty, to pure deception at worst. Paul's message to the Corinthians then, and God's message to us today, is that without the resurrection, the gospel is altered. Divine grace declared in the gospel, imparted and received through the gospel, empties away. Our message, the gospel itself, becomes therapeutic, makes us feel good, manipulative, works for our advantage, or just plain foolish. We just are crazy people. Which is, in fact, the third consequence. So, first one, we have Christ is dead. Second one, preaching is pointless deception. Third, faith is insanity. Faith is insanity. We find this in verses 14 and 17. Tied closely to the previous consequence of rejecting the resurrection of the body that voids our message, that voids the gospel. Here we find out, and and Paul tells us, if the resurrection doesn't happen, we're crazy. We're crazy people. Faith is insanity. Where the gospel proclaims us righteous, it actually turns out we're still dead in our sins. And that's, that's what Paul says here in this passage. Where the gospel proclaims life and peace, it turns out we only live at peace with one another because of some shared illusion. We don't actually get along because of the gospel. We're all just kind of drinking the same Kool-Aid, as it were. And even consider Paul's own sacrifices for the gospel. Reflect on the testimony of the martyrs, saints rejoicing in the eternal promises of resurrection, even in the face of death. Without such a promised resurrection, all that sacrifice built upon God as he has revealed himself to be, turns out to be a lie. 
craziness. We have become nothing but crazy people, a cult, a cult. And we live doomed lives, which is in fact consequence number four. Christians are doomed. Christians are doomed. We find this in verse 18 when Paul says, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And there's a sense of permanence to the language Paul is using there. Paul points out that if there is no bodily resurrection, there will be no hope, no future reunification of Christians who have already passed on from this earthly life. Note even the language Paul uses in this section when he says fallen asleep. So Paul, while he is, he is undermining this misunderstanding and this, this false teaching, really, he's maintaining a consistency, a coherence with how he talks about death when he says fallen asleep. Bodily death, then, is not a terminal point in human existence, permanently separating body and spirit, but only a temporary situation. Death is likened to sleep throughout redemptive history. Consider the testimony of several kings of Israel in the Old Testament uh, being described as sleeping with their fathers. Consider Psalm 13:3. Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. Or Daniel 12:2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus as well describes death as sleep when resurrecting Jairus' daughter and Lazarus. So Paul's language here should kind of key us, remind us, stimulate our minds to remember that this message has been sprinkled throughout Scripture. The long-testified realities of our bodily resurrection, waking up from the sleep of death at the glorious return of Christ. At the death of Lazarus, Jesus himself proclaims, I am and the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Apart from this precious promise, as Paul points out, the temporary sleep of death, in fact, becomes permanent. We're doomed and hopeless, which leads us to our, leads us to our final consequence here, the difference the, gospel make, uh, the resurrection makes to the Christian story. And that is consequence number five, Christians are hopeless. Christians are hopeless. And we find this in verses 18 and 19. Denying our resurrection not only dooms Christians who have already died, but in fact destroys any hope of faith in the living. After all, if there is no bodily resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. That was consequence number one. And if Christ has not been raised, we have nothing. We have less than nothing. In fact, Christians have been pursuing a fantasy. We are pursuing, us here today, we are pursuing a fantasy worthy only of the world's sympathy and deepest pity because we absolutely think we're right. And that would be a terrible place to be if we turned out to be this wrong. Christians, in fact, throughout history have sacrificed families, homes, riches, comforts, worldly pleasures, all of it in the name of a living Christ, of the full, rich, complete promises of the gospel. If there is no living Christ, if there is no promised resurrection, we have, we have made and are making and will make all these sacrifices for nothing. That's, I don't know how, about how you, you feel, but I feel that's a pretty hopeless existence. Pretty hopeless. 
especially as one who just got his PhD in theology. (laughs) The resurrection, it turns out, we drop out this little phrase in the Apostles' Creed, it actually turns out it makes a big difference, right? Difference number one, the Christian story depends upon the resurrection. Without it, Christ is dead, preaching is pointless deception, faith is insanity, Christians are doomed and hopeless. Consider the questions God asks us today from this section of this passage. Do you live as if Christ is still dead? What I mean is, um, who lives in the choices of your life? Do you give life to Christ in the sense of, are you living a Christ-like life? Or are you giving life to your flesh, to to your own selfish desires? Does your entire life, speech, actions, emotions, choices, relationships, proclaim the entire gospel? So is there any part you're leaving out in your life and testimony? Is there some element missing that's just not sinking in? What keeps you going when death separates you from friends and family? How do you counsel others who experience such separation? Where is your hope grounded? Do you just feel secure because you're comfortable? You make enough money. Your family's still okay. You have an okay job. You live in an okay house. You like to read. What do you root your life in? And what do you genuinely have hope in? What drives the sacrifices and good actions of your life? Have you really taken to heart the otherworldly the resurrection side of the Christian story in your love for God and love for neighbor. Answering these questions honestly is actually kind of painful. I know it was for me. Uh, yet they are very revealing. It reveals much about our hearts and our lives, whether the, action, the resurrection, resurrection actually makes a difference in our story, whether the Christian story is our story, whether we are connected with what's greater than ourselves. And that is the gospel. The resurrection, though, makes a difference because the entire Christian story, the gospel, depends on it. It's difference number one. But there's a second difference as well. Difference number two. Christ's rule declares resurrection realities. Difference number two. Christ's rule declares resurrection realities. So after outlining the negative consequences of resurrection denials in verses 12 through 19 of our passage, Verses 20 through verses 28 act as an exposition of the Christological roots of our own resurrection and the ongoing resurrection realities Christ's present and future rule reveals to us. In these verses, we come to understand that we, whether we fully grasp this or not, we actually will have no context or framework for really knowing and appreciating and living God's Christ's present rule and future rule, apart from understanding what the resurrection is and how it roots the, the, the Christian story, both now and in the future. We won't really understand it. We won't grasp what's being said in this passage unless we affirm the bodily resurrection. In this section, Paul actually starts back at the basics, Christ's resurrection, and then goes on to reveal two resurrection realities declared by Christ's rule. So resurrection reality number one, Christ's resurrected rule confirms present and future victory over sin and death. 
Christ's resurrected rule confirms present and future victory over sin and death. This is in verses 20 through 22. In these verses, 20 through 22, God reveals the significance of Christ's bodily resurrection to the promises of our faith, that Christ frees his people from the power, penalty, and presence of sin and death. Because Christ has been raised, his children will follow after him in resurrection life, living a foretaste of it now, but fully experiencing this resurrection life when he comes again. Christ is the first fruits, verse 20 explains. An agricultural image uh, also tied to the Old Testament Israelite worship, pointing to the, the harvested crops at the first of a season that are gathered and offered up as then a promise to future fruit and harvest. So maybe you're getting the imagery. In this language, God, God declares that the resurrected ruling Christ now, who is alive and resurrected and ascended, is himself and his body, resurrected body, the promised guarantee of God, resurrection of God's children in the future to everlasting life and peace. As Roman five, Romans 5 confirms, and this passage also echoes, death entered the world by one man, Adam, our representative head, and life then comes by another man. Death in the first Adam, life in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. The precious promises revealed through all of Scripture are finally and totally fulfilled in Christ. Because you remember, God makes a promise to Adam at the beginning. A seed will come. And God makes this promise throughout Scripture. A seed will come. A seed will come. And we see this in Jesus Christ. God's promises to us in Christ are yes, and it will be so. The first resurrection reality declared in Christ's rule for us present and future victory over sin and death. But there's a second resurrection reality in verses 23 through 28 where Paul unpacks and God reveals to us this kind of story for us. Resurrection reality number two, Christ's resurrected rule reveals God's plan for history. Christ's resurrected rule reveals God's plan for history. Verses 23 through 28. Verses three through 20, 23 through 28 build out the future of history from incarnation to consummation. Uh, read, it, read it again with me here. Follow along. Uh, but each in his turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come. Then he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has not... For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has, put un- has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Because of Christ's resurrection, the resurrection of the body, our bodies, is inevitable. Whether we assent to it or not, God reveals to us this is going to happen. Christ's resurrection begins a period of history, a period in which we now live, wherein God is actively subjecting all the world's powers to his present rule and granting victory to his people as we claim his victory as our own. Ephesians 6.12 explains this spiritual battle very clearly for us. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities and powers, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Thankfully, though, we do not fight this battle on our own because we live and breathe and act in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Because of new life in Christ, through the mind of Christ, by the power of Christ, we live victoriously, patiently enduring and waiting for the consummation. Christ's resurrection and ascension is a preview, as it were, a trailer, to use a popular term, uh, for what we will experience, what is our future, our guaranteed future. And here in this passage, we find a reversal of Paul's logic that in, in the first section, right? So Paul in the first section says, uh, generally, if you deny a general resurrection, there's a specific idea that cannot be true. Paul then reverses this, turns it over and says, well, there's a specific truth that cannot be, that, deni- that if this specific truth is not, is not true, then the general cannot be true either. When he says, um, namely, Christ, the singular one, the singular, defeated death, was raised to life, returned to the Father, as a promised foretaste and picture of the church general being raised in victory over the final enemy, death, ascending to glorious eternal fellowship with God himself. So, we cannot deny the general without rejecting the specific, Paul tells us first. And then in this section, Paul says, you cannot deny the specific without also then rejecting the general. So he, he builds this entire argument that way. So then be encouraged, church family, because if we confess, if we believe, Christ has been raised from the dead. What God reveals to us in this historically reliable, confirmed event, confirmed by eyewitnesses, as Paul tells us in the previous section, verses 1 through 11 of 1 Corinthians 15, and confirmed by the apostolic witness, the witness of the church through history, then we too will have resurrection life. Death may even make a claim on us now. We may sleep now in death. But that claim is not final, is doomed to fail. We will be united again, body and soul, with God in heaven because of these great and precious promises revealed and confirmed in Christ Jesus. God has a plan and his plan will come to pass. God will fully be revealed in all his splendor. He will be all in all as the scripture says. But before we move on to our final point this morning, I'm going to ask a few more questions. So consider these um, before we move on. Are you ruled body and spirit by the resurrected Christ? Do you just submit the way you feel or what you think to Christ? Or are you actively submitting your whole way of life to the resurrected Christ? Does your daily life, even if you would say this to me in a conversation, you would say this to one another, to yourself, does your daily life actually reveal that to be true? Or is there some disconnect between what you state you believe and what you are living? Do you have victory over sin? Do you consistently experience victory over sin? Do you have calm assurance in the face of death? What worries you more than you love and trust in God? Anything? Do you believe God has a plan for this world, a good, gracious plan? Or do you perceive of God as some vicious, spiteful deity that's just waiting to get you? 
okay, maybe you affirm God has a good plan for the whole world, but maybe God doesn't have a good plan for you specifically. Believe in this. God has a wonderful plan for you, for your family, for this world, for this church, for this community, and it will happen. We can trust in his plans. So it turns out the resurrection makes a difference. God has shown us that the resurrection is foundational to the Christian story. There's difference number one. The Christian story depends upon the resurrection. We've also seen Christ's rule, present and future rule, declares resurrection realities. That is, Christ's resurrected rule confirms present and future victory over sin and death and reveals to us a snapshot, slightly confusing at points admittedly, but God has a plan and it will be fulfilled and we can understand it sufficiently. There's one final difference, our third difference this morning, the resurrection makes. And that is the church's practice is shaped by resurrection living. The church's practice is shaped by resurrection living. We find this in the last section of our our passage this morning, verses 29 through 34. And I'll read them one more time. Listen to these. Now, if there's no resurrection, so Paul goes back. There's no resurrection. This is what's going to be true. But there is, and this is what's true. But then Paul in this last last section says, okay, well, if there's no resurrection, I'll, I'll, I'll grant you that. Here are even more consequences, essentially. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. So in these verses, uh, right at the start, we actually find one of the more confusing uh, and controversial statements in all of Christian doctrine and scripture, the baptized for the dead, notorious baptized for the dead. Maybe you didn't realize that's, that's a controversial statement, but I'll tell you, it is. It's controversial. Uh, so don't expect me, <laughs> although I'm fresh out of my PhD work, don't expect me to provide some insight or solution beyond what countless scholars who are much more wise and skilled in their biblical exegesis have not been able to figure out. Uh, but just to give you a bit of a, a portrait of what may be going on here, the Corinthians may have practiced baptism, for martyred converts who may have not been baptized prior to their martyrdom. So there was the, the Corinthian church may have recognized a central connection between confessing the gospel message and being baptized prior to, to dying. Uh, this also just may be very simply a, an ongoing practice of washing someone who had died in preparation for burial, symbolically preparing them for body, the body, for the preparing the body for the afterlife. This may be a way of honoring the dead kind of symbolically, you baptize yourself to have kind of a relationship, uh, a, a shared spiritual unity with someone who has, who has passed away. And it's also even unclear whether Paul approves or disapproves of what they're doing. Uh, whatever the practice, regardless of Paul's affirmation or den- denunciation, you don't need to have a final answer on any of those issues to understand and accept and submit to the powerful moral and ethical charge revealed in this passage. In these verses, God through Paul makes one last turn 
again, toward the significance of the resurrection and pointing to the living witness of the church. And he provides two indications that resurrection living is happening in the church. Um, An indication number one, we see in verses 30 through through 32. The resurrection grants courage in the harshest circumstances. The resurrection grants courage in the harshest circumstances. In verses 30 through 32, Paul points out how much danger inherently the gospel brings. And if there was no resurrection, why on earth, why on earth would anyone in their right mind, again, going back to point one, Christians are insane, faith is doomed, faith is insanity, why would anyone do anything for the sake of the gospel? How could Paul have courage to face the spiritual beasts, and that's kind of the language he's using. There was an imperial cult likely that he was facing down in Ephesus. Why would he face that such harsh, terrible, spiritual battle? risking his body and soul. Why would he risk that if there wasn't more to the Christian story? There wasn't a resurrection. If there is no resurrection, if there is no bodily life to come, no person would go through all that bodily pain with with confidence, with courage, with patience, with peace. Without the resurrections, Christians, plain and simple, we shouldn't be praying for the persecuted church. We should be counseling the persecuted church to to move. Maybe you should leave where you are and move to a little more comfortable setting. Christians in the Middle East, North Korea, China, North Africa, they're wasting their one bodily existence. They're wasting it. I mean, does that really, does that really sink in? If there's no resurrection, any pain, any suffering, sacrifice, it's pointless. Don't do it. What are you thinking? Don't throw your one existence away. As Paul says here, if there's, no, if there's no existence beyond this one, let's just have a good time. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Praise God, though, that that's not the case. That that's not the case. Even though he calls us to sacrifice, to take up a cross and follow him, he also grants us resurrection life through the empty grave. And this leads us to the second indication of resurrection life in the church. Indication number two, the resurrection promotes holy and righteous living. So in face of harsh circumstances where we must face down pain, there's kind of a negative aspect. There's a positive aspect. The resurrection should make us better people, better human beings who glorify God and seek the good of the world. And we find this in verses 32 through 34. If there is no bodily resurrection, we ought to pursue all the pleasure we can, as fast as we can, as soon as we can, for as long as we can, without any regard to the future. Paul, in fact, here in this passage, quotes an ancient philosopher, Menander, um, in verses 32 and 33, um, probably making just a common appeal to folks in that day that were just pursuing purely hedonistic lifestyles, probably angling themselves in a way that, well, I'm actually more spiritually superior, and this may not make sense to us. I don't think it really makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm spiritually superior because I'm doing all I can to to please my body now because I know that there's no body later. So I'm pursuing the best in this life now, and I'm spiritual enough to pursue the the best life next. And that really doesn't make any sense, but that's kind of what Paul's saying. The spiritually minded person understands there is an existence both now and later 
that, that demands accountability for everything done in the body. And in fact, Paul's pointing out here, don't be misled by this kind of pe- these kind of people because when you, when you listen to this and affirm this and, and walk this way, you're misshaping who you are. And when Paul uses this good character, it's a reference to an entire, your, your personhood. You are misshaping your desires through your poor behavior. You may think it's harmless. Well, what's it really going to cost me? You are hurting and harming yourself, body and soul, making yourself less like Christ. This kind of reckless pursuit of of pleasure uh, is not the Christian way of life. In fact, resurrection living recognizes the accountability of life lived here and now. When When we will stand before God and give account for things done in the body. The resurrection then is not simply some positive affirmation. Oh, we're going to live again. Isn't that great? The resurrection should, in fact, act as a reminder and a warning of our future stand before an all-knowing, all-righteous, all-holy, all-good creator. And in this passage, God calls us back. Just as he called the Corinthians back, he calls us back now. Come back to your senses. Come back to your senses. An appeal to bodily living, right? Your senses? So Paul is saying, realize you are embodied. Come back to that reality, this embodied reality, and live body and soul as if you will stand before God, body and soul. Live a holy and righteous life. This kind of thinking and living shapes the church. It draws us to courage in the face of difficult circumstances and draws us to holy living, a faithful holy witness. So do you possess courage indicative of living resurrection life? Do you share the gospel in your speech, in your actions? What gives you courage to face the day? Is it the gospel? Is it the promises we have received and will receive in Christ? Or is it fear? Are you just afraid? Is it money? Money makes life a lot more comfortable. Is it popularity? You just want people to like you. Is it your family? Family's everything. Do you live as if Christ will return and you will go and stand before a holy and righteous God who will judge? Or do you live as if you have nothing to lose? There are no consequences for your actions. Now, don't get me wrong. There is grace and forgiveness and eternal peace but even Christians will be held accountable for our actions. What truth about God, what God are you proclaiming in your actions? In 1 Corinthians 15, God reveals to us, thankfully, the difference the resurrection makes. We've reflected upon these three differences. The Christian story depends upon the resurrection. Christ's rule declares resurrection realities And the church's practice is shaped by resurrection living. So I began this morning, I read the Apostles' Creed, and I intentionally dropped out a small little phrase that maybe we skip over even when we recite it. And as it turns out, we would have had to change a lot more, right, about the Apostles' Creed if we would have omitted that phrase. So to remind ourselves of 
these fundamental commitments, um, let's stand together, and we're going to recite together the Apostles' Creed, including the resurrection of the body. So if you would, recite it with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray together.